Buongiorno, benvenuto. Welcome to episode 12 of City Breaks Florence. This week I'm going to depart from tradition a little bit. I'm not going to talk about a particular place in Florence to visit, but on the back of the last two episodes, which were all about the Signoria and the ruling council of Florence, I want to take a little time out to consider the life of probably the most famous person other than the Medici who worked in that building, and that's Niccolò Machiavelli. I've always been quite intrigued by him because there aren't that many people whose name becomes an adjective used down the centuries, are there? The only other one that springs immediately to mind for me is Churchill and Churchillian. But Machiavellian is particularly intriguing, I think, because of what it means. When I looked him up in a few encyclopedias, one of them said that his name is, quote, a byword for treachery and self-interest. I wonder if he'd be pleased to know that. I have a sneaking suspicion that maybe he would. So today then, some biographical details about Niccolò Machiavelli, followed by quite a long look at some of the things he wrote, because the quotes are just fascinating. I found it rather sad when I read that almost all of his work was only published posthumously, so he didn't ever find out what a massive influence he was going to have. But never mind, perhaps we can make up for it by giving him some airtime today. So, who actually was he? He was born in 1469 in Florence. He grew up in Florence. His family had been quite well off, but it's thought that actually in his father's generation that wasn't so much the case. But he did get quite a good education. Dad had a massive collection of books and Niccolo was a great reader. He enjoyed the classics. He enjoyed reading history. And from what we know of him later, he obviously stored it all away. I think his reading taught him that Italy had once been the centre of a very great empire. He was very fond of reading about the Romans. He'd learned Latin from the age of seven onwards. And all of these things intrigued him. He grew up in the Florence of Lorenzo the Magnificent. And again, in retrospect, we can imagine him enjoying watching the way a great ruler influenced people and had power. And as it happened, just as he was going from childhood to adulthood, the word Rinascimenti, so Renaissance, began to be used in Florence. Bookshops began to open. There hadn't really been many before that. So all of this conspired really in his favour. The things in which he was interested all seemed to be coming together and becoming important. Not very much is known about his very early career, but after the point when the Medici had been banished from Florence and the city was being ruled by a Consiglio dei Dieci, so a council of ten, Machiavelli was elected to be its secretary. It's quite astounding to note that he was actually only 29. We're not quite sure how he got to a position where people wanted to put that much trust in him. But when you hear what some of the things he wrote later, you can easily imagine that he would have been plotting and scheming and making himself very useful and generally getting to a position where somebody had all that faith to put in him. Obviously, his position meant that he had to work very closely with the leader of the council, and he soon set about making himself very useful to him. The leader of the council, one Piero Soderini, wasn't very popular because Florence was in the middle of doing not very well in a battle against Pisa. In fact, they'd been fighting various battles and they'd been using foreign mercenaries. And Machiavelli thought about this and decided it really wasn't a good idea and he should suggest something better. His point was that if you had foreign mercenaries fighting for you, they weren't really fighting with passion for the cause. They were just doing it for money. And if somebody else offered them more money, they'd probably change sides. This had, in fact, happened a number of times. And Machiavelli thought, right, what can we do about that? He suggested to Soderini that they should set up a militia. So 
men from all over the Florentine territories who weren't actually professional soldiers, but who could be given uniforms and some training and be ready to be called upon whenever they were needed. Nobody else had thought of that, but Soderini thought it was a good idea, so he duly set about doing it. Fortunately, on their swearing-in parade in the Piazza della Signoria in February 1506, the chronicler Luca Landucci was present, so we have him to thank for a description of what happened. So these men were given a fancy uniform, so they'd all feel part of the outfit, and they were given some training, and then he describes how, quote, a sergeant taught them how to use arms. And sure enough, this paid off, because only two years later, in 1508, the militia scored a victory against Pisa. Acting under Machiavelli's leadership, they managed to prevent supplies from entering the city by blockading it. So once they were cut off, they were going to be quite easy to defeat. So, one nil to Machiavelli. Soderini then began sending him on diplomatic missions so he was, would travel to the courts of other important leaders and of course being Machiavelli he used that to his advantage as well, made lots of notes about how these people operated, analysed their successes and their failures and stored it all away. I read an account of one of his trips to Rome where he met the infamous Cesare Borgia and wrote quite a lot about what he'd learnt from him. So he describes Borgia welcoming the, some enemy commanders to his camp and whining and dining them a bit. In what turned out to be a trick, he was trying to separate them from their troops and as soon as he'd managed that, he had his own men follow them on their way back to their camp and murder them. Machiavelli wrote about this very much in terms of how he'd watched a clever man get the better of his enemies, which seemed to inspire him to go on and, and want to be clever too and, and also get the better of people. I think just the fact that he wanted to use Cesare Borgia as some kind of role model tells its own story, does it not? So Machiavelli was secretary to the council for 14 years, but not even he could prevent what happened next, which was the demise of his boss, Soderini, and the return to Florence of the Medici, who of course weren't going to be keen on somebody who'd served the previous boss, and sure enough, it wasn't long before he was arrested and thrown into prison on charges of plotting against them. He wrote about his time in prison and mentioned, quote, rats as big as cats and lice as big as butterflies. In fact, they didn't manage to press char the charges against him and he was released, but it was still the end of his political career in Florence. Stripped of all his offices and power, he set off to the family estate a few miles outside Florence in a place called San Casciano. And it was at this point, being unsure what else he could possibly do, that Machiavelli took to writing. We'll come on to the books that he wrote in a minute, but actually one of the things that he wrote that's been as much read as anything else was one of his letters to a friend still in Florence, one Francesco Vettori, and it's been described as the most famous letter in the Italian language. It's really just a description of the life that he was leading and what he thought about it, but it does make for really interesting reading, so I'm going to quote you some bits and pieces from it. So he talks about how in the mornings he spends two hours walking about the woods stops to talk to some of his workmen and to settle their disputes, which, as he writes, are, quote, usually over nothing. So he's still there, even in this very rural and unpolitical setting, getting involved in the relationships between other people and having some influence. Then he describes how after that he might walk over to the, a spring where he likes to sit. He checks his bird snares as he goes. And of sitting at the spring with a book under his arm, he writes, quote, There I am happy. I read Dante, Petrarch, or one of the minor poets like Tibullus or Ovid. I read about their passion and their lives, and I remember my own. This makes me happy for a while. 
Then he describes going to the local inn where he likes to catch up on the news and gossip and do what he calls, quote, simply observe mankind. He talks about getting to know all different kinds of people and the, quote, huge diversity of their fancies. He goes home to eat in the evenings, says he normally has, quote, poor food. Then he goes back to the inn most evenings to play cards with, as he puts it, the innkeeper, the butcher, the miller and a few brickmakers. He talks about playing the rustic and he describes the fact that often there are arguments over the card games and shouting matches over, quote, a penny or two, which can be heard all the way to San Casciano. It all sounds quite jolly and friendly, but actually he also describes this as being, quote, cooped up with vermin. And he curses his luck and talks about how he's lost the central role that he used to play in the politics of Florence. Then late in the evening, back home, back to his study, he writes about taking off his mud-stained clothes and putting on, quote, the robes of court and palace. And he describes spending up to four hours reading the classics, which he describes as, quote, the food for which I was born. And he says it helps him forget all his misfortunes and makes him totally absorbed. And he ends the letter by saying that he's been doing a lot of thinking and he's got some ideas for a book which he's going to call De Principatibus on Principalities and he's going to dedicate it to His Excellence de Medici because he's new to being a prince and might welcome some advice. I think he's probably hoping that this will secure his re-entry into politics when the Medici realise how useful he can be. But of course we know with hindsight that this actually never came off. He spent most of the rest of his life living in this place that he's been describing and writing. And I'll give you a rundown of his main works and then we'll come back to my favourite and have some juicy quotations and readings from it. His most famous book is called The Prince. He wrote that in just a few months and it's a political work. And as soon as he finished it, he started on a much longer, more involved political work called Discorsi, which means discussions. And they're both works about politics and leadership. And they start from the rather gloomy premise that man is fundamentally bad and that you need to know this and understand the workings of his evil mind if you're going to get the best out of him. So although poor Machiavelli is not running anything or leading anybody anymore, he's certainly writing about how best to do those things. As you'll hear from the quotes in a few moments, he had some quite cynical ideas The general thinking is actually he was quite pragmatic. What he really wanted to achieve was to preserve the freedom of Florence, keep it free from threats and and have it always be well led. And he was really saying, look, if if that's your goal, you have to do the following things perhaps en route to that. I've, I've seen a description of his work as being a treatise which explains that really the end always justifies the means. His constant letter writing and trying to keep in touch with the powers in Florence did pay off to a certain extent because Giulio de' Medici commissioned him to be an official historian and to write the history of Florence and the affairs of Italy. Machiavelli took this task very seriously, and in the end it became eight volumes worth. And in 1525 he actually went to Rome to hand it over personally to Pope Clement VII, who liked it and repaid him by granting him an annual stipend and offering him some other bits and pieces of work. So now that he had a pension, he was able to move back into Florence, in fact, for the last two years of his life and be involved in minor ways in in what was going on there. So I suppose that's kind of a happy ending, but certainly nothing on the grand scale, which I think poor Machiavelli had probably envisaged for himself much earlier on. And then the last work I'm going to mention is completely different from any of those previous ones. It's called La Mandragola, which means the mandrake root, and it was a comedy. 
one which people liked, in fact, and which earned him quite a reputation at the time it was performed and amused people, but I don't think it's ever performed these days. He also wrote some verse, he wrote some novellas, but it really is for his two political works that he's mostly remembered today. So much for his biography then, let's enjoy some of what he wrote. I've taken several chapters from his book The Prince, because really he's got lots of different things that he can expound on, and all of them are amusing, I think. Anyway, so we're going to have a little bit on running a government, some ideas on generosity and meanness, some ideas on how to manage your ministers, and lastly, the wonderful chapter entitled Avoiding Flatterers. So, starting with chapter 5 from his book, which is entitled How to Govern Cities and States that Were Previously Self-Governing, he's obviously imagining the Florentines moving into other places and conquering them, and this is what he has to say in the opening lines. When the states you invade have been accustomed to governing themselves, without a monarch, and living in freedom under their own laws, then there are three ways of holding on to them. The first is to reduce them to rubble. The second is to go and live there yourself. The third is to let them go on living under their own laws, make them pay you a tax, and install a government of just a few local people to keep the state as a whole friendly. He goes on to give some examples. So he reminds us that the Spartans conquered Athens and Thebes and then set up governments run by a few local people, but in the end they lost these towns. So clearly that wasn't the way forward. The Romans, he reminds us, quote, raised Capua, Carthage and Numantia to the ground, and that way held on to them. So if you want to conquer somewhere, you really have to destroy it, because otherwise, as he puts it, it will destroy you. As he puts it, whatever you do, whatever measures you take, if the population hasn't been routed and dispersed so that its freedoms and traditions are quite forgotten, they will rise up to fight for those principles at the first opportunity, just as the Pisans did after a hundred years of Florentine dominion. I notice he's slipping in a little reference to his success against Pisa. Well, not in so many words, but he's mentioning the town so that perhaps when the Medici read what he's written, they'll be reminded how useful a man Machiavelli was. He's very interesting on personal qualities as well. So his chapter 16 is entitled Generosity and Meanness. Actually, the examples are still in the context of taking over other cities, but they do read quite nicely if you're interested in human nature. So he starts by reminding us that actually it's quite nice to be thought of as generous. That might be something you want people to think of you. But he says that could be a problem. You're going to have to be lavish. And then if you're spending money being generous, you're going to have to impose taxes and raise money and people will start to hate you. And eventually, horrors, you might run out of money and then nobody will respect you. So here's his solution, as he says, you have to play the long game. Quote, since a ruler can't be generous and show it without putting himself at risk, if he's sensible, he won't mind getting a reputation for meanness. With time, when people see that his penny-pinching means he doesn't need to raise taxes and can defend the country against attack and embark on campaigns without putting a burden on his people, he will increasingly be seen as generous. Generous to those he takes nothing from, which is to say almost everybody, and mean to those who get nothing from him, which is to say very few. And in the same chapter, he's very amusing on the idea of thinking about where the money that you're spending is coming from. Is it yours or is it someone else's money? Um, if this doesn't make you think of uh, politicians and whatnot, then I don't know what will. So here he is on that topic. Quote, Either a ruler is spending his own and his subject's money or someone else's. When the money is his own or his subject's, he should go easy. When it's someone else's, he should be as lavish as he can. 
his examples of Caesar and Alexander talking about how they went into other countries, took what wasn't theirs and spent it, up, spent it and gained a lot of prestige. As he puts it, quote, what's not your own or your subjects can be given away freely. Spending other people's money doesn't lower your standing, it raises it. So there you go. Do feel free to make a list of people who are spending your money and uh, write to them and tell them whether you think it's Machiavellian or not. Chapter 22 is entitled A Ruler's Ministers, but it's really about thinking about the personality of other people, especially those who work under you, and working out how to get the best from them. If you're a fan of office politics, or maybe family politics, I'm sure you'll find something here to amuse you. He starts by dividing people into three categories, so this is what he's got to say on that. There are actually three kinds of mind. One kind grasps things unaided, the second sees what another has grasped, the third grasps nothing and sees nothing. The first kind is extremely valuable, the second valuable, the third useless. I think probably for Machiavelli the first kind was himself grasping things unaided, but he goes on to explain how the second sort, the ones who see what another has grasped, can be useful. If they understand it, you see, even if they don't have the creativity to be policymakers themselves, they can still support somebody who is a good policymaker and encourage their good ideas and correct the bad ones. I'm just trying to imagine going into Machiavelli's office and telling him I think one of his ideas isn't very good. And actually, surprise, surprise, he's way ahead of me because this is what he has to say on that topic. You need to be careful, he points out, of somebody who seems to be doing too much thinking. This is how he puts it. When you see a man thinking more for himself than for you, when his policies are all designed to enhance his own interests, then he will never make a good minister and you will never be able to trust him. A minister running a state must never think of himself, only of the ruler, and should concentrate exclusively on the ruler's business. So there you go. You better be have in mind what your boss really wants and make sure that you're working towards that. Otherwise, he's not going to be able to trust you. But it's a two-way thing. Machiavelli says, really, the ruler should take an interest in the ministers as well. So if you are a ruler in your domain, here's what he thinks you should be doing. Take an interest in the minister. Grant him wealth and respect. Oblige him and share honours and appointments with him. That way, the minister will see that he can't survive without the ruler. He'll have so many honours, he won't want any more, so much wealth, he won't look for more, and so many appointments that he'll guard against any change of the status quo. When rulers and their ministers arrange their relationships this way, they can trust each other. When they don't, one or the other is bound to come to a bad end. End of quote. And then just finally, a little bit from chapter 23, which has the marvellous title, Avoiding Flatterers. And Machiavelli points out that it's quite easy to fall prey to flattery because, quote, men are so ready to congratulate themselves on their achievements and to imagine themselves more successful than they are that it is hard not to fall into this error. So his advice is to make it clear to people that you don't mind them telling you the truth so that they won't be tempted to just flatter you all the time. But even then you need to be careful. So you choose a few ministers very carefully Ask them always to tell you the truth, and only when you ask for it. You don't want them turning up and telling you things anyway. And when they've been asked and given their opinion, you should do the following. Quote, Listen to their opinions, then make up your mind on your own, following your own criteria. And then, of course, you make the decision, and you should be firm in your decisions. I do recommend The Prince to you. It's shrewd, it's cynical, it's amusing. I enjoyed it very much. 
I think Machiavelli wrote it at least partly because he was trying to get back into favour with the people in power, make them realise how useful he could be. But it's also said that really he loved Florence so much and he wanted it to be a successful republic and not be tyrannised by other cities. And he was worried that if the rulers were weak or didn't understand human nature, that they would fall prey and the republic would collapse. So perhaps he really was doing it for the good of everybody, not just himself. I think he's quite a difficult man to make your mind up about, and he certainly does get some very bad press. So I'm going to read you the description from an information panel in Rolf Fiat's book Art and Architecture, in which he says the following. In his infamous treatise, Il Principe, Machiavelli gives a chilling account of the mechanisms and necessities of successful royal leadership. In order to promote his own interests, the prince must combine the characteristics of the fox and the lion and always allow for the possibility of deceit, hypocrisy and fraud in his political calculations. Such cynical suggestions soon earned the author the reputation of a cold-hearted, plotting champion of unscrupulous power politics when his work was first posthumously published in 1532. The cliché of the almost diabolical cynic, devoid of all conscience, who puts unconditional reasons of state before all moral ethical principles, quickly became synonymous with the name Machiavelli, and beyond politics, the pejorative term Machiavellian is still used today to depict an utterly self-serving way of thinking and acting, the ultimate purpose of which is personal gain. On the other hand, there is a brilliance about him that you really do have to admire, I think, when you consider that he was only 29 when he was elected to one of the very highest offices in Florence and that he was deemed to have carried out those responsibilities very well. He was a natural administrator. He was very good at seeing what was what and coming up with good policy decisions. And then even more important, he was good at translating them into action, as per the Pisa story, for example. He was a very shrewd observer of current events. He had an incisive understanding into human nature. And he was a wonderful writer. He could look at a complex set of circumstances and synthesise what he'd learnt into a report or a diplomatic dispatch that really got to the nub of the problem and suggested solutions. People say that his diplomatic reports are still read today and, and used as models of the genre. And I hope we've given you a flavour from the extracts from the Prince of the way that he really had a vocabulary and a turn of phrase that allowed him to write incisively and actually even wittily. I don't know if he meant to be witty, but I found some of what I read really quite funny. Anyway, hopefully you've heard enough about him and from him today to be able to make up your own mind and decide whether you think he's a hero or a villain or both. So that more or less concludes today's episode and in fact is the end of the little run of three that we've had on the Piazza della Signoria and the people who lived and worked there and made history there. So in the next episode, it'll be time to move on. We're going to cross the river and go to the Palazzo Pitti, which, if you remember, was the bigger, more extravagant, more impressive palace into which Duke Cosimo moved when the Palazzo Vecchio became a bit too small for him and his ever-expanding family. The Palazzo Pitti is on most people's list, I think, of things to visit in Florence. So I hope you'll find it informative to hear a little bit about the history of the building and a bit more about some of the people connected to it. All of that in a week's time. I hope you'll be able to join me for that. And meanwhile, just remains to sign off in the usual sort of Italian fashion by saying grazie, arrivederci. Grazie.